listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on the book of Acts entitled, The Birth of the Church. We're going to continue our study, as James said, in in the book of Acts. We are in chapter 7, verse 17, where we're looking at Stephen's message that he delivered to the Sanhedrin. You might say in a way that he was offering a defense for his life, but in fact, he's offering a defense for the gospel, and he does it with such a forthright and bold manner that it actually leads to his own execution. But would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together, Acts chapter 7, verse 17. Of course, he's in mid-thought when he says, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. And then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt, and he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house, and when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And the next day, Moses came up to two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But when the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come and I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to their ruler and deliver, to be their ruler and their deliverer by God himself, though the angel who appeared to him was in the bush. And he led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. And he was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. 
And that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we reflect upon this passage that your Holy Spirit would help us in not only putting it all together in a clear storyline, Lord, but to make it part of our personal storyline, that the truths and the principles that come from these passages, Lord, are things that enable us to walk with you just as Moses and Abraham and Joseph walked with you. Help us, Lord, not to see that as something that's beyond the possibility, but rather what you have called us to and will empower us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Stephen now brings us to the third notable person in his historical summary of the nation of Israel. It is Moses. Previously, he had began showing us about Abraham, a simple nomadic shepherd who has an encounter with God. And in that encounter, God entrusts to him his covenant promises. And that covenant really had essentially three parts to it. First of all, God said that he would give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. In essence, when we talk about the nation of Israel, even today, we believe that this is still happening because God has said, this is a land that I have given to you. That God is not restricted by people's prior uh, residencies, but essentially he says, I gave this to be a land to my people, Israel, in perpetuity or forever and ever. That secondly, he told them that even though at that time Abraham was childless, that God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you of innumerable descendants, and out of them will come great kings. And so he spoke of a future of great power and ascendancy. And then thirdly, he said that great nation and through who these great kings would come would eventually bring a blessing that would be a blessing upon the whole earth. And many of us understand that is the messianic blessing, that out of him would come that prophet that he foretold who would not only be a prophet for Israel, but a prophet and a savior for all mankind. This promise that God made was repeated six times in the book of Genesis, four times to Moses, or excuse me, to Abraham, once to Jacob, once to Isaac, and we'll find it repeated again in the later books. And it's what we call a unilateral covenant. Unilateral means even though there are two people involved in the relationship, only one is responsible to act. And we say that because it's really of grace. I mean, grace means God does something for you that you don't deserve. In fact, he does something for you that may be the opposite of what you deserve. You may be deserved to be knocked down, slashed apart, and thrown in the garbage. And yet God says, no, I'm going to lift you up and exalt you because of grace. It's not because of something you've done or something you failed to do, but because I have chosen out of my own will to do it. So when we follow the Abraham covenant through the Old Testament, one of the things we see over and over again is that God says, I'm going to bless you because I made this promise to Abraham, even though you are not living up to my standards or my call or my commandments that I gave you. So it's all based upon grace and, and not upon works. Yet the fulfillment of the promise was not going to happen immediately either. In fact, he later on said in Genesis 15, your descendants will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And then he adds, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, that is to the land of Canaan, and to your descendants, I will give this land, the land of Canaan. Now, 
as we're reading uh, in Acts, we find that Stephen says, as the time drew near. What time is he talking about drawing near? The time in which God said he would bring them out of Egypt and put them in the land, place them in the land that he had promised to them. It's interesting because when we reconstruct the timelines, we actually find that God knows how to tell time. It's amazing. Nobody taught him. He just figured it all out on himself. And basically, when those 400 years came, that's when we find that uh, uh, that Moses shows up on the scene and comes in as a deliverer. It was Joseph, our second key character, who uh, in this speech used by Stephen, was the one who brought them into Egypt in the first place. And it's interesting because we find that the timing around it was probably around somewhere around 1800 B- BC, 1800 years before Christ. He was the number two man in Egypt. He was allowed to settle Abraham's descendants in an area called the Nile Delta region. And the Delta is just that. It's a large area where the Nile River floods out and creates a marshy flood plain. It's still today, it's the agricultural center of Egypt. And it's also where um, uh, they make those Giza sheets they're always advertising on TV. Um, But... But they settled them in the land of Goshen, which was the most fruitful part of the land of Egypt, and the ancient city of Avaris, which may be, we believe, a corruption of the Egyptian term for Hebrew, Ivri, that he may have been named after the Hebrew people that settled there. It's interesting because modern excavations have not only found an evidence of a Hebrew settlement at Avaris during this time, but there was also found a semi-ruined temple with a statue or remains of a statue that had been broken up by somebody of a non-Egyptian Semitic ruler that many suggest may in fact have been Joseph because what it had was a kind of a, a reddish hair. He's holding the Pharaoh's crook, which means he was a ruler, that he governed over this region. And also he's wearing a multicolored robe like that of Joseph. We have no other character like this or even statuary anywhere in Egypt that comes close to this representation. And many suggest that this, in fact, may be a statue of Joseph who ruled over this area and the, the children of Israel during this time. It appears that essentially the Israelites became an autonomous people, that they were part of Egypt, but they had freedom of self-government over the land. Until, of course, it says that another king who knew nothing about Joseph became the ruler of Egypt. Another king implies another dynasty of pharaohs had come on the scene. And this new dynasty had a pharaoh by the name of Kamos I, He became the pharaoh in about 1550 BC. He conquered the Semitic kings who ruled over the area of Goshen. And at least in his own records, he talks about retaking this area of Goshen and enslaving the Shashu or the Hebrews who were living there. He was succeeded by his son, Amos I, and he had a sister by Amos Tumerisi, who we believe was actually the adoptive mother of Moses. And he was succeeded finally by Tutmos I, who we don't have record of his, of his um, uh, sarcophagus or his mummy, uh, which may have happened because he was destroyed in the Red Sea and didn't have a proper burial. 
It's an interesting story because if you know anything about Egyptology and you know about the Tutmose II, Tutmose III, Tutmose II's mother was a, by the name of Hatshepsut, who was the woman pharaoh who reigned in place of her son until he became old enough. And, you know, there's a lot of things about in Egyptology that tie into this story. But the point that's really interesting is we begin to see some really his, clear historical synchronization with the various events so that we can even now begin to identify who was the Pharaoh that Joseph served under as well as the ones that oppressed the Israelites and that Moses overcame. The Bible, in fact, tells us very little about the first, first 40 years of Moses' life, but the G Jewish historians Philo and Josephus provide a great many details. And as I shared before, the reason it probably doesn't do that is because it's really not their story, it's God's story. The Bible is God's story about how he redeems mankind. And the people that appear in the story are kind of like bit players who form a certain part. So if there's parts of their life that don't directly apply or impact the story, they just aren't covered. Keep in mind that Moses himself is the author and spends very little time talking about his early life. But Philo and Josephus write the following. They say, when Moses reached his manhood, the Ethiopians set out to conquer all of Egypt. And we think of Ethiopia as being a very backward country today, but in ancient times, it was one of the great empires and was often in conflict with the Ethiopians for control of the Nile River Valley. They invaded, he says, as far as Memphis and the sea, talking about all the way to the Mediterranean. And the Egyptian diviners and oracles urged them to make Moses the commander of Pharaoh's army. Moses, in his first battle, made a surprise attack on the Ethiopians, and they were defeated. They fled Egypt while Moses followed them all the way back to their own country. And in the end, they retreated to Saba, the capital of Ethiopia, and when Moses had punished the Ethiopians, he married Tharbas, the king of Ethiopia's daughter, who had fallen in love with Moses. Now, it's interesting because we talk about Moses. We find that all of these kings or pharaohs of this period have Moses in their name. We begin with Kamos, and then his son Amos, and his uh, daughter Amos Tumaseri, and then Tutmos, one, two, and three. So that we find that similarity in the family name appearing throughout the story. But it was after these events, knowing that his Hebrew brethren were being oppressed, that Moses made the fateful decision to reconnect with them. We have no assumptions that he didn't know that he was a Hebrew. I mean, there were certain things about him would have given himself away like every time they gave him a bath. He would have had the marks of circumcision, and that would have been an indicator that he was not a native-born Egyptian. But nevertheless, he was, we'd have no information that he was, that was concealed with him, concealed from him as a child, as we often assume. I mean, in the movie that Cecil B. DeMille made, you know, he has this epiphanal moment of, hey, that's why I got part of me missing. You know, he doesn't have this sudden realization that I'm, I'm one of them. No, I, I think it's very likely that he always knew who he was. But there came this moment where after this great victory over the Ethiopians and his prestige and his power, that he recognizes his opportunity to establish himself amongst his own people. It's interesting because the story hardly reflects it, but if Moses would have walked into these communities, they would have taken immediate notice of him because of his apparel, because of his stature. He was a man who was not to be trifled with. To say that this becomes a turning point in Moses' life 
would also be a real understatement because in a world just as concerned with upward mobility and status as ours is today, he makes a decision that causes his status to plummet and his upward mobility to become very quickly downward mobility. In fact, he about goes as low as you could possibly go. He went from being one of the most powerful, privileged, and respected men in the country to becoming an enemy, a, a state enemy who is a traitor, and he faces the absolute total rejection to the point where, in order to survive, he has to flee the land that had been his home all his life. And he ends up working as a shepherd for a Midianite chieftain in the Sinai wilderness. Now, that's significant. We find him tending sheep for the next 40 years of his life. Because remember, in chapter 46, we are told every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So that over the next 40 years, this man went from being, as Stephen tells us, powerful in speech and action to something far, far less. When God approaches him, we read in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 10, he says, O Lord, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. Please someone else, send someone else to do it. So when God comes and says, you know, appears to him in a bush that, you know, keeps on burning, not to be confused with a singing bush in, in uh, the Three Amigos. This is a burning bush that keeps on burning. And as he approaches it, it says, you know, God begins to speak and says, I am the God of your forefathers. Keep in mind that Moses doesn't have a lot of theological background yet. He hasn't been prepared for this moment, and suddenly this divinity or this divine character, this angelic being is declaring who he is and says, God has a job for you. And his first response is often the same as many of our responses. Well, I'm not a good speaker. I don't really know how to do that. I mean, uh, first of all, I just got out of Egypt with the skin of my chinny-chin-chin, and now you want me to go back and start standing in front of the Pharaoh and start commanding him to do things because you said so. I think you need to find somebody else. It's an interesting thing that rejection does to us. It, it kind of takes away all of our self-confidence, doesn't it? I mean, if you think of thing, look at things in your life that you tried and then you stopped very quickly, it's usually something that ended causing you to be rejected. You tried out for the team, you didn't make it. You know, you, you signed up for something, you weren't good enough. And you begin to say, well, it just must not be for me. But the resilience of most people is not strong enough to keep on trying and keep on going. And so in that way, I think a lot of us can identify with the weakness in Moses that we too have known what it's like to make an approach and, and then step back. I remember that one of the scariest things as a teenager was to try to ask a girl out on a date because you, you knew there's a possibility that she would look at you and go, I would rather die. <laughs> so you say there is a chance. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just terrifying. That's why in junior high, we didn't have dances. We had stand-arounds, you know? And the guys would be on one side, the girls would be on the other side, and we'd be daring each other. You go and, you go and ask one of them, you know, if she wants to dance. And then you'd, you know, you'd go over there, and sometimes they would say yes, and then sometimes they'd say no. And if they said no, that was the last time you took that fateful journey across the gym floor ever again. Scary stuff. 
But rejection in a serious way is a, di- a difficult thing because when we go through it, we, we feel that it really strikes the very essence of who we are as persons. And what a contrast we're given to us in Moses, who was a man who was so confident and so capable, and suddenly, because of his rejection by his own people and his rejection by his Egyptian people, that all the only ones who would accept him were a bunch of native Bedouins out in the desert who really didn't give a darn one way or another. Yeah, you can watch our sheep. That he finds himself reduced to the lowest of places. But one of the principles I think is so important for us to understand in life is that rejection is often God's way of redirection. Rejection is how God often redirects our life. That we have the idea that if I dream of doing something and then the door closes, that there are no more doors out there. And it really is just a matter of a process of elimination. And that's one of the things that Edison said was his real genius in making the many discoveries he made. He said, I figured out that it would take me about a thousand failed experiments before I finally found the answer. So every time he tried something that didn't work, he just said, that's one less thing that I have to try. And he would just work it out. And he found on average, it took me a thousand tries at anything before I finally found success. Now we look at that and say, well, that's you know, even better than the little choo-choo that said, I think I can, I think I can. But this is a man who understood that really the danger in life is that we give up or we give out and we give in instead of going on. And that's where I think that the differences began to be made in our lives. That every one of us has come to moments where we're discouraged, we feel defeated, we feel like we can't do it, we can't measure up. And yet in the inside of us, there's this compelling sense that God wants us to do something. And many times what's going on is God's allowing you to experience rejection because he wants to redirect your life in a new way. Well, part of that redirection is also humility. (laughs) The next time we see Moses, he is 80 years of age and he looks and sounds like a broken man, unsure, disillusioned. And I have to tell you, I'm afraid to tell you, I'm sorry to tell you that this is often God's ways. Isaiah 66.2, which is one of my, my theme verses for my life, especially I like the reading in the Amplified, goes this way. It says, this is the man to whom I look and have regard. God's way of saying, this is the kind of person that I pay attention to. And we often think, well, it's got to be someone who has the looks, the stature, the bravado, whatever it is, to be that, that, that winning Ipana smile or whatever it is they have. But it's not. He says, is the man who is humble and broken or of a wounded spirit and who trembles at my word and reveres my commands. A man who has come to that place of brokenness, if you will, And when he hears God speak, he's terrified not to obey, but submits. That oftentimes the fear of doing something is overcome by the fear of disobeying God and not doing something. And if you look back on your spiritual journey, you'll find there have been many moments where you've come to this place where you're terrified to do something, to talk to somebody, to take that first step, to go in that direction. And yet, at the same time, you know God wants you to do it so badly that you're afraid not to obey him. So you just kind of hold your nose and step out and make it happen. It reminded me of the baptism we had a few weeks ago, and one of the young ladies came up to me and said, I'm terrified of water. I almost drowned, and, I, I, and right now I am terrified just to be in here. 
And I think what was more scary was that she was entrusting her safety to someone like me who was going to push her underwater and pull her back up, hopefully. Usually I wait till the count of 10 so the sin is good and dead. But, <laughs> but I, it just struck me that that courage, courage is not being free from fear. Courage is being afraid and yet doing what's right anyway. Doing what God wants you to do anyway. And that has more to do with the failure to fulfill what God wants to accomplish in your life than anything in the world. That when you come to that moment, you're so terrified of how it's going to affect you that you run away. I often wonder how many things could we be rejoicing in as followers of Jesus, but we'll never know because we just simply refuse to let him have his way in that area of our life. You see, Paul tells us that God used brokenness to keep him usable. When he said to the Corinthians, my, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul then said, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I will boast in my weakness. Now think about it. When's the last time you went out boasting about your weaknesses? Most of us, I mean, well, let's say all of us, always try to put our best foot forward. You know, it's, it's like uh, you don't want to really be seen in your worst place, worst form. And so we make all these efforts to present ourselves as best we can. But the reality in life is that when we're honest about our incapacities or inabilities or our weaknesses, God is glorified when he does something. And that's whole, why a friend of mine used to always put, he said, the way up is the way down, and the way down is the way up. He told a wonderful story one time of a young pastor who uh, was asked to speak at a very prestigious church in England, and uh, he was, had studied and prepared and knew his message forwards and backwards and was ready to deliver what he thought would put his name on the map of, of ministerial achievement. And as he was invited up to the pulpit, he bounded with confidence, opened up his message, and then everything began to go downhill from there. In fact, he got confused, he stumbled over his words, he lost place, not a whole lot of what he said made any sense whatsoever. And when he got done, he just simply closed his book and humbly walked down the stage and took his seat, feeling very defeated and discouraged. My friend said that one of the other vicars looked at him and said, if he had gone up the way he went down, he would have gone down the way he had gone up. That if he'd gone up humble, that God would have met him in that humility and done great things. But the point is that oftentimes when we are at the height of our own confidence, we think that that's when we're prepared to do the best we can. And it's an interesting thing because pride is so attractive. Ever notice about yourself when you're feeling very proud of yourself, you feel really good about yourself? When you feel proud, you've done something and people are going, wow, that's really good. And you're going, oh, well, it's, it's the Lord, but you know, he had to use somebody. So it's, you know, I guess, I don't know why he chose me. I, I'm no different from you, but unless of course he sees something that's different in me, but otherwise we're just alike, but there must be something special about me. And we, we feel really good at those moments. That's why the athlete, when he makes the score, you know, holds up the finger number one, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Because we feel our best when we're proud. 
But when we're small in our own eyes, we tend to give in to the emotions. Now, one of the wonderful things is I found that the power of God is not dependent upon my emotions. And I find that the movement of God is not dependent upon my mood. God does what he wants to do. And so that how I feel emotionally about something is really not relevant. Now, that's a hard word for a lot of us in this culture because this culture tells us your emotions are more important than truth. It doesn't matter what's true, right, wrong, or good, evil. If you feel good about it, then go for it. That's all that matters. And let me tell you, when I was using drugs, I really felt good about it until I began to see the deteriorative effect it had upon my life. You see, that's the whole point, is that just because you feel good about something doesn't make it right. But I find things like pride and anger, boy, they make us feel powerful and in control. And God says, but I don't want you to be proud, and I don't want you to be angry. Those two kind of run together a lot. When somebody says to me, I'm not proud, I'm just angry, I go, okay. <laughs> Truth is, you're both. Because if you're not proud, you, you have nothing to be angry about. You see, what God was looking for was not a competent leader, but simply a committed follower. And we always get stopped by the idea of saying, well, I don't have the background, I have the training, I have the experience, I, I, I'm not competent for this task. And God says, but I'm not looking for competence. I can give you all that competence if you'll just commit to following the path I have for you. And if you'll follow that path, you'll find a level of competence will come. But it doesn't begin with becoming competent, it becomes becoming, begins with becoming a, a, a committed follower of Jesus Christ. I remember early in my ministry, I was working at a, uh, this large church and this man came in, sat down and he taught, introduced himself to me that he had several uh, advanced degrees in theology and had all of these trainings and backgrounds and experience. And he said, how does a guy like me find a position on a church like this? And in my naivete, <laughs> I said, well, you know, if you just come and start volunteering, like say volunteer to teach a Sunday school class and, and after a while we'll, we'll be able to get to know who you are and we'll see how God uses you and see him manifest those gifts and he hit the ceiling. He just, I thought to myself, I guess I didn't handle that real well. But you see, he felt because I have all this academic background, therefore I have pre-qualified myself with the competence I need. And yet, my pastor always said that God is more concerned with availability than he is with ability. We're always concerned about what's their ability. No, he says, well, how available are they? How yielded are they? And it's no simple thing that men like Moses or even like Joseph and Abraham and even Paul had to be reduced to a place where they felt they had nothing to offer that God says, I think I can work with you now. I think I can work with you. In fact, when in Numbers, it just simply says, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. What's the benefit of that? Well, James tells us, and Peter tells us the same thing. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble means that you bend yourself in submission to what God has allowed to take place in your life. To bend yourself in submission to what God allows to take place in your life. 
Again, that's kind of anti-American because we think we need to fight our way out. We need to overcome. We need to burst the bands and make it right and strive for justice and no, you know, on and on we go. We're fighters. And yet God says, you know, there's a time to fight, but there's also a time not to fight. And the biggest challenge is to decide, am I fighting for me or am I fighting because God wants me to fight? And many times I find, more times than not, when we are angry, we are fighting in our own strength and we will lose. How does God go about doing that? How does he make proud people humble people? Henry Little wrote a song many years ago called Whom God Chooses. You may have heard it, but it always stirs me every time I read it. It goes like this. It says, when God wants to drill a man and to thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, Watch his methods, watch his ways. Watch how he ruthlessly perfects when he royally elects. He hammers him and hurts him. With mighty blows, he converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. And while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good, when God's good he undertakes, how God uses whom he chooses, with every purpose he fuses him, with every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Go then, earthly frame and treasure. Come, disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather, but all must work for good to me. How I wished so many times in my life that those things weren't true. And not only do I know from my past experience that they are true, but I suspect that I will relearn the truth of those things in my future life as well. We live in a world that is driven by the pursuit of upward mobility. We want to be prosperous. We want to be popular. And yet we fail to understand that all of God's servants have found their lives moving in the completely opposite direction most of the time. That oftentimes they have suffered loss of friendships, loss of things. And we have a whole theology that has arisen that could only come from a culture like ours because most of the third world, nobody would come up with such crazy ideas that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise all the time. But you see, God took Moses so high and then he took him so low only to raise him up to a place that he had never known before, the heights of holiness. The heights of holiness are a place that only God can bring you as you have come to the lowest places you can in your own self and in your own life. When you discover that you have nothing 
of great consequence to offer. A man who had grown up with kings and royalties, but now the writer of Hebrews tells us that he had chosen to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And by faith, he left Egypt. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. That's such a strong word, invisible. (laughs) I want God to be visible in my life. In fact, something I've added to my prayer list as my wife and I pray for friends and family that we know that don't know him. I got the idea from, from Google. Um, they always seem to have pop-ups all over everything I look for. It pops up with these ads for this thing and that thing. God forbid that you should ever look for anything on the internet because you're going to be haunted for months by these pop-up ads coming up all the time. And I thought to myself, God, would you be a pop-up in these people's lives? I pray in the name of Jesus that you just start popping up in every conversation, popping up in every encounter, popping up at every moment. Let those pop-ups coming up where they'll start thinking about Jesus all the time. Just a thought. Because I want God to be visible to people. I want the invisible God to be so visibly obvious that they stop acting as if God doesn't have a part to play in their life. Like he's impractical and irrelevant. He may be there, but he doesn't do anything, so why worry about it? But when they begin to see God inserting himself in the moments of their life, it becomes very difficult for them any longer to say he's not there. You see, what we see in Moses is a man who gave up a kingdom in order to lead his people out into a desert on what he believed by faith was going to be a great adventure. <laughs> I, uh, I just wonder what it would have been like to be Moses. You know, you're, you, you do all these miracles and everybody's going, wow, man, this guy's got hot hands. Stay away from him. And he's marching out, leading the thousands of Israel out into the desert. And they start going out and, and you know, a couple of people saying, uh, hey, did you lose your compass? Uh, we're supposed to be going this way. Why are we going that way? There's nothing out there. And, oh, this is where we're going. And finally leads them to the Red Sea and they're standing there. And it's just a, you know, a beautiful beach. It's a beautiful piece of water. Greatest scuba diving in the world, by the way, if you're interested. And they come to the edge of this and all of a sudden they realize that, that company is coming. They, they can see the cloud dust of Pharaoh's chariots racing across the desert grounds. The, the cloud of dust would have been there, but they would have felt the rumble of the chariot wheels and the horse's hooves tromping down upon them. And they knew that they weren't coming saying, hey, you forgot a few things. You left your mail. You know? No, they were coming to destroy them. They say that one armored chariot could kill a thousand men in 10 minutes. Devastating tools of weaponry. I mean, they were armed to the teeth and designed. Even the horses were trained to kill and to trample those they came to. And in that moment, as they're panicking and Moses is panicking along with him, God says to him, tell the people to shut up. That's my translation to stand still and see what I'm about to do. 
We're told that the waters stood up on heaps and they went across on dry land. Cloud descended upon the chariots of Pharaoh so they couldn't find them, didn't know where to go. And when they finally opened, they raced down into the open sea only to have the sea close in upon them. And that's what happened to most of the first. Because he was willing to do that, God appeared to him, not just in the burning bush, that was profound, and not only upon Mount Sinai, but we read in Exodus 33, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when you are willing to follow God where he wants you to go, he will speak to you in a very similar way. As Isaiah the prophet said, you will hear a voice come behind you and say, this is the way, walk in it. People often say, I don't know why God doesn't lead and direct me. And the answer is because we walk by faith and when we do so, we are guided by his spirit and somehow we always end up in the right place doing the right thing in just the right way at the perfect moment. Yet Stephen's point in focusing upon Moses was not simply to brag on him. Rather that this Moses to this very day is considered, and certainly was in this time, the most important prophet of Judaism. He was the one who delivered them out of the land of slavery in Egypt. He was the one who brought them into the promised land. He was the one who gave them the law of God. He even gave them their national identity because before this time they were 12 disparate tribes that were loosely related but had a very hard time getting along with each other. And suddenly he gave them this concept that you are this chosen people of God, this national identity. And yet he is repeatedly rejected by their forefathers. The forefathers of whom they often boasted to have been descended from. As he says again in the Amplified in verse 39 of a reading, he says, our forefathers determined not to be subject to him, refusing to listen or obey him, thrusting him aside, they rejected him, and in their hearts yearned for and turned back to Egypt. So that basically Stephen's whole point to them is saying, don't you realize you're doing it again? as your forefathers did with Abraham, as your forefathers did with Joseph, as your forefathers did with Moses, you too, once again, are doing the same thing. So that when we look at Abraham, Moses, Joseph, even Stephen and Jesus, we can ask the question, what do these guys have in common? And what it was is a radical obedience to the Father. And the consequence was often to be rejected by people. Francis Schaeffer once wrote, he says, one of the greatest injustices we do to our young people is to ask them to be conservative. Christianity is not conservative, but revolutionary. Christianity is revolutionary in the truest sense. Not the revolution of noise and anger and crazy gimmicks and so forth, but a life that has been so dramatically changed that it changes every life that it touches in a similar dramatic way. But what stood out about these men, despite their fears of rejection, they became radicals. And radicals always get rejected 
Because instead of accommodating the culture to get along with the culture, they stood against the culture and said, that's wrong. You see, we all desire to be popular and prosperous. In fact, the one factor that most drives us to seek to be prosperous is we believe that prosperous people are popular. We'll make automobile choices. We'll make clothing choices. We'll make all sorts of choices, what kind of a gun you're going to buy or not buy or who you're going to shoot it at or not shoot at. But what happens when you commit to following God, you will often be required to walk away from either one or the other, either the popularity or the prosperity. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what will I do when that moment comes? How dependent am I upon the approval of others to feel good about myself? How often have you taken a stand for something that was unpopular, that went against the grain. You see, I think that we are coming to an era in our culture very possibly, I don't say this prophetically, it just is easy to do the math, but we're coming to an age in our culture where things that have always in the past been understood as being wrong are now being positioned as being right. G.K. Chesterton once said that when things that are unthinkable become debatable, soon they will become acceptable. So that as I look at my lifestyle, you know, I look back on, you know, 50, 60, 70 years of my life and I look at what people understood as the way things were. There, there were certain things that were good. A man and a woman got married and they had kids and they raised a family. A man stayed faithful to his wife. Wife stayed faithful to her husband. Oh yeah, there were exceptions, but they were always tragic exceptions that people worked and labored and sacrificed and served and felt a certain loyalty and so forth and so on. They honored the Bible. They honored the God of the Bible. They, all these things were just kind of assumed. They, were, they weren't up for discussion. And then they suddenly became the great debates. So that when I'm listening to one of the politicians, uh, Beto O'Rourke, saying that churches should have their tax-exempt status removed from them, and I think to myself, I wonder what the argument is for that. Or when another one, Julian Castro, says that he feels that transgender women should have, men should have a right to have abortions. <laughs> and I, I live in a culture where I'm not sure what pronoun is proper, so you can call me it. And, and this stuff on one hand becomes so silly and yet you find that people are making huge, huge social and cultural issues about it. But most importantly, what they're trying to do is to get you and me to say, well, abortion is just between a woman and her own body. Or, if people love each other, that's fine. It doesn't matter what species they are. And we have to make a decision. Do we very boldly and courageously say, you know what? The Bible says, and God says, not in anger, not in frustration, 
but just simply saying, well, let me tell you what God says. And then watch the fur fly. I'm sad to say that's the way it's going. But if we don't, then we fall into the trap of being more concerned with being accepted than being right. Speak the truth in love. It's our job. It's our calling. Father, I pray that you'd help us in these times that we're living in, a time that you said, if we are indeed in the last times, you warned that they would be perilous times. They would be dangerous times. That more and more when our very fundamental faith issues are being attacked and criticized and condemned and called antisocial and when even our state legislatures are trying to pass laws that says that if we won't uh, marry gay people or let them serve on our staff and our churches, then we should be punished, held in contempt, even have legal action and suits filed against us, as is happening with some Christian business owners. I can only imagine the courage it takes for some of these men and women who have spent years building a business and a reputation of quality and service and integrity and then Sunday being sued because of that integrity. But those are the days we live in, Lord. And I pray that you'd give each of us the courage in the face of rejection to understand that God may be redirecting us into a new calling, a new season of our life, that let us not cling so tightly to our prosperity and our positions that we're afraid to stand with you. Give us a vision and a passion in our hearts that we would one day stand in your holiness and that we too could say, God speaks to me. I see him all around me. I hear him all around me. When I read his word, he speaks directly to me. God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to be those kind of men, those kind of women in such a time as this. Help us to begin to pray in that regard now because perilous times are coming. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>